My name is Owen, and I'm the pastor here at Emmaus, and I'm excited to be able to continue in worship with you by studying God's Word together. If you would take your Bible, or if you have access to the Bible on your phone, and that's easier for you, if you would turn to the book of Titus. We are beginning a new sermon series in the book of Titus. Titus is one of those letters of Paul that's over toward the end of the New Testament, The letters of Paul are ordered largely according to their length, and so you're getting pretty close to the end of Paul's letters, pretty close to the end of your copy of the Bible by the time you get to Titus, but we're going to study this letter together leading through Easter, taking us right up to the beginning beginning of May, and so it's going to be a great opportunity if you've been out of the habit of reading Scripture and studying Scripture, this is a great place to begin. Because it's a first Sunday of the month here at Emmaus, we don't have Elevate or our children's church time, so we're going to mix things up a little bit, and the kids will be in here with us. If you need to step out at any point, uh, we have the TVs in the lobby. Feel free to take advantage of those however you need to, uh, but we want to be able to study God's Word together. And kids, I'm going to have a couple of things for you that will hopefully be helpful for us as we, as we move along during, during this time. I want you to know that after the sermon is over, don't pick up your purse or grab your keys or head out because the most important thing of encountering God's word is that we're able to respond to God's word. That as we hear God's word preached, as we sing God's word together, then we respond. And you're gonna have a couple of opportunities as a church family to respond this morning. Immediately after the sermon, we're gonna take the Lord's Supper together as our response to that foundational hope that we have through Jesus Christ. So we'll have a chance to respond in faith and obedience to the Lord's Supper. And then we're gonna sing some songs together and during those songs you'll have an opportunity to pray. You'll have pastors up here at the front to pray for you. And so just know that we are studying God's word for the purpose of responding this morning to his word and then as we leave this place to continue to live that out. So with that said, let's get started on the book of Titus. We're going to be reading the first four verses this morning and really just focusing on the first three during the sermon time. And there's some notes on the bulletin uh, on the back of that if that's helpful for you when we get to that point. Titus chapter 1 verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago, but at the proper time manifested even his word in the proclamation with which I was entrusted according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is the word of God. All right, kids, and big kids, and kids of all ages, I have something in this box that I hope might be helpful for you to understand a little bit of what we're trying to accomplish with these first verses out of Titus. The way that Paul's letters begin is the themes that he focuses on at the beginning of a letter. So it doesn't matter if you're reading Galatians, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, Titus, The themes that he focuses on at the beginning of the letter aren't accidental. They're meant to form a foundation for what that letter is going to be about and what's going to happen in that letter. So in this box, I have this right here. 
Who knows what this right here is? This is Stretch, last name Armstrong. Surprisingly enough, this is not a recreation of my body. Uh, this is Stretch Armstrong. Stretch was released in the late 1970s, so if you played with one of these as a kid or purchased one for your kid to have, uh, that, that dates us all a little bit. But they actually re-released Stretch Armstrong last year in 2016 as a toy that you can purchase. No, you can't play with this after the service because this is not mine. I've borrowed this from someone. I don't want it to get messed up. But Stretch Armstrong, if you've not played with Stretch, is designed where you can pull the arm and then it goes back. And hours upon hours of fun. You can pull the arm and the leg and it continues to go back. What's the big deal with Stretch Armstrong? Here's my concern, and I know this is a little bit of a cheesy transition, but here's my really deep concern, and this is dead serious about life, is that we live in a world where oftentimes we feel like Stretch Armstrong. We don't have this body, but we do feel like we are stretched in every possible direction. You go through life and you're stretched this direction. And you go through life and you're stretched this direction. And then your kid grabs onto your leg and stretches you this direction. And your boss grabs onto the other leg and stretches you this direction. And we go through life and we feel like we are continually being stretched. We are continually being overwhelmed with life. We're continually being overwhelmed with what's happening. Last week, I joked I joke that our teenagers have more time on their hands than they actually realize, which is true to an extent, but more than that, they're growing up in a world where you look at the statistics for teenage depression and teenage anxiety and the way that kids feel continually overwhelmed because in many ways that have not happened before in history, they are being stretched. They're being asked to participate in things, they're being asked to do things that completely stretches their lives in ways that they were never meant to be stretched. And if we're not careful, we take this into the Christian life. You need to journal. You need to pray more. You need to read your Bible more. You need to be a part of a group. Dads, you need to work. Make sure you provide for your family. Be sure you go to a men's study group. Be sure you spend plenty of time with your family. Make sure you have a lot of recreation in your life, but not too much recreation because then that might overtake your life. Make sure you're getting plenty of sleep. After a while, you're like, I don't know what Jesus meant when he talked about rest, but it's definitely not the life I live Stretch Armstrong's life. I don't live whatever life that is that Jesus promised. And then social media makes that a hundred times worse because with social media, you face this below the surface pressure that you haven't done enough, that there's something else out there that you need to do. There's another book you should be reading, there's another program you should be involved in, there's another organization you should be helping with, and you go through Facebook or Twitter and you feel like this, like I'm just being stretched all the time, I'm completely overwhelmed with life. What Paul does at the beginning of Titus is here next week, you're gonna get down to verse five and you're gonna find out that the purpose of the book of Titus is that the church would be put in order, that it would be centered and established and put in order. What he does in the first four verses and specifically I guess the first three verses is before the church is put in order, the Christian life has to be put in order. And so my goal this morning is that we look at verses one through three, that if you feel stretched in every direction, if you feel overwhelmed, if you are searching for peace and freedom and joy, and you're saying, I know the Christian life is supposed to bring stability, but I feel like Stretch Armstrong, 
I hope that these verses will provide that foundation, that stability, that freedom for your life. So because I feel awkward holding stretch, I'm gonna put him back in the, uh, back in the box. And let's go back to Titus. Titus chapter one, verse one. It starts off and Paul introduces himself, setting the foundation here. It says in the New American Standard Edition, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. So there are two descriptions of Paul here, that he's a bondservant of God and that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. A very cheesy but very easy theology joke is that Paul was the original 007 servant, bond servant. You like that? Yeah. Now, unfortunately, you'll go home and you'll remember Stretch Armstrong and 007. And stay with me because I want you to go home with more than that. But that's an easy theology joke. Paul is setting up two descriptions of himself. He's a servant of God and he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Why does he do that? Why is he making those descriptions? When he calls himself a servant of God, partly he's playing on this servant or even slavery imagery that you'll find sometimes in the New Testament, that in sin, we are enslaved to that sin. But in Christ, we've been set free from sin in order to be a servant of God, to make ourselves a servant or a slave to God. But more than that, servant of God is a common Old Testament expression. It was used for Abraham, it was used for Moses, it was used for David, and so when Paul calls himself a servant of God, it's not only a description of his humility, but it's also saying that he has a responsibility. He has a responsibility in a leadership sense. You know the term servant leadership? This is the idea that Paul is grabbing onto here, that he's a servant of God. But then he says, what type of servant is he? He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Apostle in the New Testament is a word that means one who is sent out, one who is commissioned. And so in the New Testament, generally speaking, when you see the term apostle, it's referring to one of Jesus' original apostles, one of his original disciples, those who were involved in the writing of the New Testament, those who were eyewitnesses, to the resurrection, you find that when you read Acts chapter one and they're trying to replace Judas Iscariot and they're needing to find a new apostle to fill that role. They're looking for someone who is an eyewitness to the resurrection. So the apostles were those original ones who Jesus sent out. But then as you get further into the New Testament, you have a general use of apostle. The way that I keep this straight in my own mind and what I would recommend to you is think of it in this way. Think of it as apostle with a capital A and apostle with a lowercase a. That's not a distinction you're gonna find in the New Testament, but it's a theological distinction that I think will be helpful for you. Apostle with a capital A refers to that original circle that Jesus had, those disciples who were involved in the writing of the New Testament, who were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. But God continued to send out messengers, continued to send out people, and sometimes you have cap or lowercase a apostle, those who are sent out. Paul is in a unique situation. Because even though he wasn't part of that original set of Jesus' disciples, 
because of the way that Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, he considers himself, and Jesus considered him to be a capital A apostle, one who was sent out, one who was commissioned with a part of the writing of the New Testament, one who was an eyewitness to the resurrected Jesus, and so he's sent out as um, an ambassador of Jesus Christ. So Paul's a servant of God, and he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice how at the beginning of this letter, Paul is able to parallel God and Jesus. I know as Christians, our language gets really fuzzy at this point. We say God, then we say Jesus, then sometimes we say God, but we catch ourselves and say, no, I meant to say Jesus, and then we get a little bit confused. Notice very clearly, though, Paul can say servant of God, and then he can turn around immediately and say apostle of Jesus Christ and fit a perfect parallel there. So when he is talking about Jesus Christ, he's talking about the one who was God with us. Distinct in person, but one in being, one in divinity, one in power. There's a very early expression in the New Testament of Jesus Christ being God with us. And as we understand more of who Jesus is, we understand more of who God is. And so Paul's making that connection early on here. You actually see that if you glance down in verse 3. At the end of verse 3, it says, the commandment of God our Savior. And then you go down to the end of verse 4, and it says, Christ Jesus our Savior. Well, who's our Savior, God or Jesus? Yes, that's what Paul would have said. Jesus Christ, God with us, God taking on flesh to show us what it looks like for God to save his people. So you have this foundation that Paul is a servant and he's an apostle, but what's the purpose that he was sent out? What's his role in the kingdom of God? Well, you have a word there in verse one. An apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God. Up here on the screen, the word for is underlined because in the translation you're reading from, there's a good chance you may not find that exact word. The translations do a lot of different things with verse one here, but the main idea is to get purpose from this word. So when he says, I'm a servant of God and I'm an apostle of Jesus Christ, the next question we ask ourselves is for what purpose? or to what end, or why am I a servant of God? Why am I an apostle of Jesus Christ? Four, and then he's gonna give us three reasons. He's gonna give us three purposes of why he was sent out by Jesus. The first is the faith of those chosen of God. The word faith in the New Testament, and especially in these letters that Paul writes to Timothy and Titus, the word faith can either refer to the body of teaching so it can either refer to the teaching about Jesus or faith can refer to our response to that teaching about Jesus. So it's either the content of the teaching is sometimes referred to as the faith or sometimes faith is our response. Now don't get too caught up on those two different things because they go together. In this instance, faith is our response. It's the personal response to who Jesus is. Now, it's not general faith. It's not just have faith and that will work out okay. It's faith in something, or more specifically, in someone. So, faith in Jesus Christ. When we talk about faith in the church, our language gets really fuzzy. Um, kids, you guys may have talked at some point about accepting Jesus into your heart. That's language that gets passed on, but you're going to be hard-pressed to find that type of language in the New Testament 
we know what we mean, sort of, when we say accept Jesus in, into your heart. But more specifically, what we're talking about when we talk about faith kids is we're talking about your response, your trust to who Jesus is and what he's done. So it's not so much accepting Jesus into your heart, it's your heart responding to who Jesus is. It's saying, I trust you. Not because of what I can do, not because of what I bring to the table, but because of who you are and what you've done. And so the core of Paul's teaching, you read Galatians, you read Romans, you read 1 Corinthians, the core of Paul's teaching is faith. What kind of faith, though? Whose faith? Well, it's the faith of those chosen by God. Well, look at the time. (laughs) I guess it's about time to wrap. No, that's not fair. We can't do that. This is one of those phrases that, if you've not spent as much time around church, is going to feel very straightforward to you. And you're going to say, yeah, sure, I, I see that. If you spend some time around church, or you read too much on the internet, uh, or you like to get into arguments with people, this is one of those things that can create a lot of controversy. What does it mean to be chosen of God? How does that language work itself out? First off, we should not be surprised to find faith and chosen of God next to one another in Scripture. Don't let that surprise you. That shows up over and over and over again. God is powerful, God is sovereign. God is wise, God is good. God calls his people to respond to him in faith and obedience and worship. Those two things always exist next to one another. The frustration comes because one, we have a tendency to choose up sides. We want something to have a title, we want something to have a category, and even better, we want to be able to get angry at the people who are on the other side of the issue. So if I can know what side of the issue I'm on, and the other people can be on this side of the issue, and we can kind of have this really clear distinction, for some reason we're kind of drawn to that. If you don't believe me, watch politics, and that'll prove to you that it's so easy to become divided to say, this is what I believe, and I'm not gonna have anything to do with people on the other side of the aisle. We're drawn to those things sometime. But even more than that, we get frustrated because the Bible has a funny way of messing with our preconceived systems for understanding the Bible. So we come to Scripture with a framework, with a system for making sense of this. Where do you get this framework or system? It usually has to do with where you grow up, how you first hear about the Bible, how you first learn about Jesus. And so you bring this system and this framework, and you bring it to Scripture, and you run into a Bible verse that doesn't seem to match up with your system, and then you've got to figure out what to do. Either you have to tweak that Bible verse to make it say something just a little bit different, or you have to go back and say, huh, maybe my system was a little bit wrong. Maybe my big framework of how I understand Scripture needs to be changed a little bit. And what you find is having a system or a framework or a theology for understanding the Bible is not a bad thing. That is, we we all have that. We need that. But then as we encounter Scripture, We want scripture to speak into our heart, not for that framework or system to drive everything. You have a big picture, then you go to the small piece. You study the small piece, that impacts your big picture of scripture. You go back, you study the individual pieces, that impacts your big picture. We're continuing to go through this process. But why would Paul use this language here saying that you've been chosen of God? 
he's doing two things, and this becomes really important for the book of Titus. He's doing two things with the phrase chosen of God. The first is he's tying these believers into the Old Testament saints. This is the foundation for Paul's chosen of God language because if you read about the people of Israel in the Old Testament, over and over you will find that they are chosen of God. That they are chosen of God not because of what they do but because of God's great love, his covenant love with them. And so when Paul comes along in the book of Titus and he talks about the faith of those chosen by God, he's taking these New Testament Christians and he's tying their lives together with the people of God throughout scripture. Because, here's the big because, because Titus is a Gentile. Titus is not a Jew. Paul is writing as a Jew, and he's going to deal in this letter with how can he and Titus be on the same mission? How can they be committed to the same faith? And one of the ways he does that is he ties Titus as a Gentile back into the Old Testament people of God. The other reason he says that they're chosen of God is because we're gonna find in the next verse that God doesn't lie. And so when you've been chosen of God, your foundation is in a God you can trust, in a God whose hormones don't go up and down day after day. Someday you feel really spiritual, someday you don't feel so spiritual. Someday you feel like you got things together, the next day life's falling apart. God's not that way. You've been chosen of a God who's dependable of a God who's consistent, of a God who you can trust in. And so when Paul says you've been chosen of God, he's giving them a foundation. He's giving them a stability. He's helping them not be Stretch Armstrong. Because if you're constantly being pulled different directions in life, you need a center. You need a core that's hold together. And you know what that center doesn't need to be? Me or you. <laughs> because if we're the core of everything, we're a mess a lot of times. We're not dependable. We're not going to be that foundation. But when God, given to us through Jesus Christ, becomes that core, then we have something to hold on to. Then we have something that's dependable. So Paul begins here, and he begins talking about the faith of those chosen of God. Then look at the next phrase that he goes to. So first it's faith. Then it's the knowledge of the truth. So the faith of those chosen of God, first is faith, second is the knowledge of the truth. Knowledge here follows from faith, and this pattern is very important. Faith and knowledge are not enemies. You say, well, why would you mention that? Because in a lot of Christian context, the idea that you would use your mind is sometimes opposed to faith. Some versions of faith, and it depends on the church you grew up in or the background you grew up in, but some versions of faith are very anti-intellectual, are very anti-study, anti-learning, anti-growth. Um, I worked in a church for a while, and the, when the guy found out that I was going to pursue a master's degree or a PhD degree, he thought that was the pretty much apostasy, pretty much turning your back on the Lord that you would pursue a master's degree or a PhD degree. Just trust the Lord, and that'll be enough. You don't find that in the New Testament. That's not the pattern of the New Testament. The pattern of the New Testament is this, faith seeking understanding. Faith is the foundation, so this pattern matters. It starts with faith, but it's faith that grows through knowledge of truth. Uh, there was a, a well-known theological writer in the 11th century named Anselm, 
Anselm was the Archbishop of Canterbury, and he developed this phrase, or depending on who you read, he borrowed it from someone else, but he developed that phrase, faith-seeking understanding. So I have an active love of God, but that active love of God seeks to know God more and more, seeks to grow in my knowledge of God. I'm not going to say I have faith, that's the end of the story. This is part of the reason not the only reason, but this is part of the reason that there's all the statistics out there about kids going away from church after high school. Part of the reason that's there is because if it's just, hey, have faith, everything's gonna be okay, and then you run into someone asking you questions about that faith, and it's never faith that grew in knowledge of the truth, you have no response, you have no foundation, you have no way of saying, oh yeah, but let me tell you about my knowledge of the truth. Let me tell you about the way I've grown in my understanding of that faith. So it's knowledge, but it's always knowledge of the truth. The truth here being the preaching of Jesus Christ. So when Paul's referring to knowledge of the truth, he's referring to knowledge of the truth about Jesus Christ. And when we know Christ, when we know what it is to be made right with him, then we're able to continue to pursue knowledge and other areas. Any search for knowledge that doesn't reach its conclusion at Jesus is going to ultimately be incomplete because he is the way, the truth, and the life. But that doesn't mean that we're not able to pursue knowledge in other areas. My concern, my concern is that, and this is kind of a generalization, but in the church, we haven't always done well with ministering to people who are scientists People who work in those STEM degrees, so science, technology, engineering, math. People who work in the soft sciences like psychology and sociology. People who work in philosophy and the meta sciences. Sometimes we haven't done a great job ministering to people in those areas because we force them to try to live in two worlds. Hey, you can have your faith world when you're at church and then you have to step out of that world and you've gotta to go to your knowledge world at your job. And if you try to live that way, that's stretch Armstrong to the point that his arms break because that's not going to be a way that you're able to find stability. It's not going to be the life that God has called you to. Students, by all means, pursue the sciences. That's a gift of God. That's knowing the world that God has created, but you pursue it on the foundation of faith. So I have an active love of God that desires to know the world that God's created so that I can better know what it is to be a follower of Jesus Christ faith seeking understanding but it doesn't end there look at the next phrase so it's faith it's knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness so if i have faith if i grow in my knowledge of the truth then the result of that is going to be godly living Godliness here is a, world, a word in the New Testament that's meant to encompass all of what it means to live out the Christian faith. So pursuing a holy life, pursuing a godly life. In the book of James, we find that faith without works is what? Dead. In 1 Corinthians 13, we find that you can have faith and you can have all knowledge, but if you don't have love, it's worthless. It's worth nothing. Faith seeks understanding, and the more I trust God, and the more I know God, the more my life is going to be transformed into the image of God. 
Romans chapter 12, where you learn that the renewing of our mind is how we're transformed into the image of Christ. That we're not conformed to the pattern of the world, but we're transformed as our mind is renewed. Faith, knowledge, godliness. Then go to verse three, uh, or verse two. Verse two says, in the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised long ages ago, but at the proper time, in verse three, manifested even his word in the proclamation, proclamation with which I was entrusted. It's faith, knowledge, godliness, built on the foundation of hope. And when you read the word hope in the New Testament, remember, I know this is elementary, but this is, this is something that a second grader could teach an adult, but we still all forget it. When you read the word hope in the New Testament, it's not wishful thinking. It's confident anticipation. Okay, so in, if this helps to write this in your Bible somewhere, write it down, make a note. In the Bible, when you read the word hope, it's not wishful thinking, it's confident anticipation. That when we see that word, we know the reason I have hope is because this is my attitude toward God's promises. God has promised this, and so I will hope in him. I'm not hoping upon myself, I'm hoping in him. The cool thing that Paul does here in these verses is he gives this like a past, present, future idea. I think I numbered them C-A-B. So C being future, A being past, B being present. It's a hope that was promised long ago. So God has been in the promise-making business from the very beginning. That he has promised not in response to our individual circumstances, but this is a promise that he made from eternity past. He promised this long ages ago. Next, he manifested that promise. Kids, I know manifested is a word that's not going to make a lot of sense. The word manifest means to reveal or to display. God made a promise of how he would shape and save his people, and then he revealed that promise. He made that promise, put that promise on display through Jesus Christ. And you say, well, that would be great if I could see Jesus Christ. And the way that that hope is displayed in Jesus Christ is through his church. So when the word of God is preached, and when the church gathers around the word of God and around the table of the Lord and gathers in worship and gathers in encouragement and gathers in communion, when we do those things, we are revealing, we are putting on display the hope that we have through Jesus. So it's past, it's present, and it's future. Because Paul says here that it's hope of eternal life. We have hope, we have confident anticipation that what we're experiencing now is not the end of the story that I'm not living for the things of this world, nor am I overwhelmed by the things of this world because I have hope of eternal life. And eternal life in the New Testament doesn't begin after you die. Don't miss this. Eternal life in the New Testament doesn't begin after you die. It begins at the moment you respond in faith to Jesus Christ and you experience his new life and that new life begins to work in you and through you and it continues for our, all of eternity. Eternal life, when you read that phrase, sounds like it begins in the future. It begins in the present, and it continues for all of eternity. And because we have that life, we have hope. Look at this quote from William Barclay. Uh, it's out of a commentary on the book of Titus, but it, but it really jumped out to me this week. The Christian gospel does not, in the, 
the word gospel means good news, the good news about Jesus. The Christian gospel does not in the first place offer men an intellectual creed or a moral code. It offers them life, the very life of God. So when we're talking about what is it to know this faith, to know this knowledge, to have this godliness, it's built on having the very life of God at work in us. How do we receive that life? Through Jesus Christ, as we trust in him, as we have that hope. So let me kind of tell you how this scripture kind of comes together. Kids, this is a great place to draw a picture on, on your notes, if you guys want to draw a picture, or adults, this is a great place to draw a picture on your notes. If you just kind of draw a flat line, like the foundation of a house, and under that flat line, you write the word hope. Hope is the foundation in this passage. Hope is the hinge. When I have confident expectation in God, it's going to transform every part of my life. So I have hope. Next to the word hope, if you just kind of draw an arrow out to the left and an arrow out to the right, what that does for your picture is it shows you that hope points into eternity past and hope points into eternity future. So I have the word hope as my foundation, and I draw an arrow to the left and an arrow to the right, and that tells me that it was promised long ago, it's been revealed through Jesus, and it goes into all of eternity, past, present, future. I'm not dominated by what happened in my past, I'm not overwhelmed by my circumstances in the present, and I'm not fearful of what's gonna happen tomorrow. I have a hope that goes from eternity past to eternity future. On the surface of that hope, you can draw a heart, you can draw a person's head, and you can draw a hand. Heart, head, hand. I have faith with my heart, I'm believing, I'm trusting. I have knowledge of the truth. I want to know, I want to grow in my understanding of God's word, of God's good news through Jesus. So I have a heart, I have a head. Don't draw the head of the person that sitting next to you, draw your own head. Uh, um, draw a head and then draw a hand. Godliness, faith and knowledge in action built on the foundation of hope. When that is the story of your life, and when that is the story of a church, that church is going to be ordered, that church is gonna be built, that life is gonna have a core and a strength and a stability to it that when we live in a world that pulls us every direction, when you open up Facebook or Twitter this afternoon and everybody else has a better life than you do and you feel like you need to do something else and read something else and pursue something else, you're gonna go back and say, no, 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 my life is built on hope. Hope in Jesus Christ. How do I know that? Faith, knowledge, godliness. Heart, head, hand. When we're able to live that out as God's people, do you know what that does? When people around you at work, when people around you in your family, when people around you in your neighborhood, when they're pulled in every direction, they look in and say, where does your stability come from? Where does your hope come from? And then all you have to do is get out a little piece of paper and write hope and write a line and draw a heart, a head, and a hand. And there's a way to show them this is my stability. This is where my life is found. This is where my hope is found. And now, as we've gathered on Sunday mornings at church, we have a chance to celebrate that. And the way we're gonna celebrate that is in just a moment, I'm gonna pray. And after I pray, those people who are a part of our choir 
are going to come up on stage as well as our deacons are going to move to the location so we are able to serve the Lord's Supper. And as we celebrate the Lord's Supper together, what we're celebrating, don't miss this, we're celebrating the stability and the hope that we have through Jesus Christ. And then after we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we're gonna sing a couple of songs together and then be dismissed after that. Let me pray for us. After I pray, the choir members and deacons are gonna move into their places so we can continue to worship the Lord together. Father, thank you for this letter that Paul wrote to Titus so many centuries ago. And Father, we live in a world that is so disordered, that's so broken, where people are pulled in so many different directions. And God, we need stability, we need a foundation, we need strength that will only come through you. And so Father, I pray this morning as we hear the word of God spoken, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, and as we sing together, God, that you would remind us of that, that you would remind us of the foundation we have in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.